Well, hello, church. Yeah, you, you need your phone. You got to text later. It is good to be with you this morning, and I've got to say it's it's wonderful to get to work with uh, with George and with some incredible singers today. I'm just very fortunate that I bought Mel Bay's Jumbo Book of Easy Chords last week. Um, they got me through it, and, and the the dot stickers on my fretboard fell off. It threw me there for a while. But it's, it's so good to be with you. We're, we are so excited to see new families joining us. And we know that the Lord will continue to bless us as we move forward. As we promised last week, we will always start by answering questions. There are um, boxes that are very subtly marked questions on both sides and also in the foyer. And remember that the questions that we're going to answer at the beginning of lessons are about the previous lesson or lessons. Uh, we got some that specifically dealt with the sermon. We're going to deal with that. We had a couple that asked me, for example, what worship was like in Scottish churches when I was a boy. That's a great story, but not today. Uh, we'll get to that one another time. Uh, there is, of course, what would, you know, the old answer would be exactly the way it was for 2,000 years, which isn't exactly true. But anyway, um, another one asked, um, questions like that or one ask a question on baptism and where we stand on baptism that's an excellent question if you will just go to the website a few weeks ago we preached a whole sermon well we i was didn't have a mouse in my pocket i was the only one up here <laughs> i preached a lesson on baptism and i believe that that you can find your your answers there one i thought was brilliant i, I missed it at first because on one side was a drawing of stars and pitchforks and i really wasn't getting what that meant but i looked on the other side and it said who's constantine because we mentioned him that's an excellent question because church people sometimes assume everybody knows the story churches were doing just fine now they were persecuted like crazy but they were growing and they were scattering when rome decided they could not defeat the church a guy named constantine decided to control it and to use it and its forces as, a, as an adjunct, as a help to the empire, rather than as an enemy. And so uh, there's a myth that he became a Christian and that he legalized the church and that he called them all together and said, now you're free. No, no, he didn't convert till almost the end of his life. What he first did is call them all in, legalize them, and then say, you're one of many legal churches, but I need you organized. And so he organized bishops and archbishops and this, that, and the other, and I'm simplifying the story. But he also said, right, I need you all on the same page and doing exactly the same thing. Before then, churches did not. This is 300 years after Jesus. He kept pushing for them to get organized and do the right thing and do the same thing. He didn't really have much of an opinion on much of it. He later made Christianity an official religion and then the official religion, but that was all a process. Before then, churches were, like I said, flourishing and moving and alike. After then, we became more localized in buildings and in liturgy and with clergy. He didn't do us a whole lot of favors. Another question came in, and I knew this one was coming in, anticipated it, and I'm glad it did. And I must say that it was asking very much in kindness and grace. That's, that's in every instance I've seen so far. What do we do with looking at the Bible saying, wait a minute, there's an issue here and there's an issue here. But 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 says all scripture is inspired by God. That's correct. 
probably that's what it says. Here's a problem. The word is does not occur in that verse in the Greek. It has to be plugged in by us. That's why some versions don't say all scripture is inspired. It says all scripture that is inspired by God is profitable for. Now, by the way, I think it probably meant all scripture is inspired by God. But you need to know we weren't given a clear roadmap on that one. So what do we do with it? Well, you need to remember when Paul wrote it. He wrote it when almost none of the New Testament had been written. Therefore, he wasn't referring to the New Testament. He was referring to the Old Testament. And he was talking about how the Old Testament brings us to Jesus. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof. What does it do? It brings us to righteousness. Who's the man of righteousness? Who is the Son of God? That is Jesus the Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had not been written when Paul wrote this. Uh, Acts had not been written. Hebrews had not been written. We probably had James and Jude by this point. And, of course, Jude tells us to contend for the faith which was once and for all delivered. And then the rest of the New Testament was written. What's our faith? Our faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what we must remember all the way through. In fact, it's even a question as to whether Paul knew he was writing Scripture sometimes. And if he was, we don't have all of it. Are you aware that what we call 1st and 2nd Corinthians are really 2nd and 4th Corinthians? 1st and 3rd Corinthians are missing. Now, don't panic. It's not like, and here's the secret to eternal life. No. If God wants you to have a book, you'll get the book. I trust in God. I have no problem. My salvation is in Christ not in knowing every single doctrine and every single nuance and doing everything right. It is in knowing who is right and following who is right. So what does that say about the scriptures? Well, he says they're useful. He didn't say that they don't differ because they do. If you've ever read the accounts of Peter uh, denying Christ when the cop crew uh, blew, you know, crowed, whatever he did, well, then you know that uh, the timing is different in each of the stories. That's okay. Have, let me just do it. Have you ever been at a family gathering when an aunt and uncle, let's say, one of them says, do you remember last Tuesday, that day on a Tuesday, we were going, and they stop the story. The other one does. I don't think it was a Tuesday. And the other one goes, I'm pretty sure it was a Tuesday. And they're doing, nobody in the room cares. It's not about Tuesday. You've got to let the point of the story be the point of the story. Jonah's not about a fish. Noah's not about a boat. Get the story. And it's not about what the timing was of a rooster and Peter. It was about what Peter did, his failure, and how Christ still forgave him and used him. Get, let the main thing be the main thing. The idea that every number in Scripture is absolute and perfect was not an early Christian idea was not a Jewish idea. It doesn't show up in any literature until the late 1800s. And it shows up in America fundamentalism and a movement that started saying things like this and not allowing any poetry or beauty to be in Scripture. It turned it into a law book, not a story. When was the last time you sat with your kids? And we're going to comfort you kids. We're going to read Article 10, Section 4, Subparagraph 6 of the legal code of the state of Tennessee. Probably not, but you tell them a story, don't you? 
right now the movie's out, Son of God, and some of you have gone to see it, and I've, I've watched message boards just light up. Oh, they got that wrong. Oh, they got that. Stop it. Did they tell the story? Yeah, but they left out this part. That's right, because they couldn't agree between John and Luke, so they merged them. It's fine. Tell the story. My son-in-law, Mike Cope, wrote us and said, you guys are keynotes at Pepperdine. We need your, your bios. So I wrote a wildly inflated one. And basically at the bottom said, and the half has never yet been told of the magnificent. And, since that's a, and I, I copied Josh, and Josh just wrote in saying, I'm looking forward to preaching Patrick's funeral. It's going to be titled, Truth is Stranger Than Fiction. <laughs> we tell our stories. Before the American fundamentalist movement came, we looked at scriptures pointing toward the word of God, who is Jesus, the Son of God, our Messiah the anointed one. We are his community, and the Bible is our community story. And like all community stories, there are parts of our community story we wish, we wish we're not in that story, but they're there. And there are parts of our story where we got it wrong, but they're our story, so we tell them. They're our story, useful, profitable, valuable, holy, leading to righteousness. And are you aware that when Paul wrote this, there were already vibrant Christian communities all over the Roman Empire, growing and prospering before he wrote his books to tell them how to do it. That's not why he was writing his books. He was writing his books to encourage what they were already doing. We often act as if the New Testament gave us the church. But as Leroy Garrett, one of our own, has taught us, the church gave us the New Testament, not the other way around. And that's very important. The good news of Jesus existed and was powerful long before the books of the Bible, of the New Testament rather, were gathered or even written. It's the story that is important. Do I then treasure the New Testament? Are you kidding? It's my story. It's your story. We love that book. We love the Old Testament too. Bits of it more than others. You know, the meal offerings and linen ephod rules are not my favorites, but they're in there for a reason as well. Look at it this way. You and I are not supposed to merely say the book, the book, the book. God gave us three things that must line up. Quick story, I'm an early adopter. That means I buy technology before it works. I'm never going to learn, evidently. Well, this, for, I remember when the first GPSs were made available to the public. Remember, it had been a military thing before then. You had to get three satellites to line up before your little arrow went, which meant I had a GPS unit that didn't work because nobody could ever get three satellites. You'd run around trying to find the three satellites to line up. Well, there are three things that have to line up. Scripture, the church, and nature. Romans chapter 1, nature is that other book God wrote. And we can know everything about God, according to Romans 1, by the things which are in nature. And so the church, the community, nature, and then his other book, the Bible. We line them up. 
we let it define itself. And the Bible itself says, this is profitable to lead you to Jesus. Okay, then believe it. How, does, how, do, we, how do we act like Jesus? Get with the group. The group will work on this. Well, how should we look at nature as well? What works, what does not work? What, what makes sense, what does not make sense? Put it all there. If you want to be simply the community of Christ on earth, look at what the Bible actually says. Let's start with Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. Come now, let us settle the matter. Or in the King James Version, which I grew up with and God prefers. I'm, I'm kidding to some degree. Come now, let us reason together. Isn't that interesting? When I was a boy, I asked preachers and teachers what this verse meant, and they said it meant when you brought your issues or questions to God that he helped you to see his wisdom. And that didn't sound like reasoning to me. It sounded like being told, which is very different than reasoning. It's, um, it's rather like, I shall say this, and because we came in separate cars today, it's safer. Um, when a woman asks you, men, what your opinion is, she doesn't want your opinion. She wants her opinion in a deeper voice. <laughs> and that's what this had been presented as. When you, how do you reason with God? He'll tell you what your reason is. Okay. But then Jesus says something in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 19. Look at this. Also in chapter 5 and verse 25. He does two different concepts. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him. Now stop something. There's something missing. Now, again, I look at the world in a different way because of my training. And one of the things that I notice here is the dog that didn't bark. If you, those of you that are Sherlock Holmes fans, you have to look what is there, but you also have to look at what is not there. He doesn't ask you to find what is right. He says, find agreement. Look at the next one. Agree Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. Remember what he told Peter? You got the keys. Lock and unlock. God approves of unity. He approves of community. And he accepts what we have decided and what we can bring to him. Paul tells Yodia and Sendiki to agree with each other. Do you remember that passage? But he never tells them which one's right. He even tells the rest of them, help them agree with each other. But he never says who's right, because who's right doesn't matter. It's the agreement. Will you walk together? In fact, the scripture says, can two walk together unless they be agreed? And I've heard that stood on its head, saying we can't walk with that group over there because we don't agree with them. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, agree so that you can walk together. Learn to agree. Paul wasn't interested in sides. He was interested in unity and peace. Can what we agree on make a difference in the mind of God? You know, I'm not indicating or suggesting that God is easily swayed or that he's blown about by fads and fashions, but throughout scriptures, you find God adapting to us. Don't panic here and says, but the Bible says he does not change. Therefore, he must always have been willing to adapt. Take a look. The year of Jubilee. What a fantastic idea. 
Every 49 years, hard reset. Everything goes back to who owned it before. Money is redistributed, land is redistributed. Nobody gets super rich, well, forever. You know, they might get it for a while. Uh, nobody gets super poor, everything readjusts. What a great system. There is zero evidence in literature or history or even tradition that the Jews ever did it. And yet God was okay. He gave them an idea, they didn't go for it. Well, what about the cities of refuge? It looks like they made a half-hearted attempt to build a couple of them, but nobody ever did the whole system. God didn't turn on them. What about the synagogue? The synagogue is completely made up. And it has nothing to do with tabernacle or temple or sacrificing the lambs or uh, the Levitical priesthood or the sea of brass and all this other, the table of bread. None of that's in there. All of the rules God gave on how to approach him in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, not a one of them in the synagogue. But that's all they could do because they were in captivity. So they did this. And when Jesus showed up on earth, he went to it and joined in. He didn't pull a Nadab and a Baihu on them. Oh, you remember that story. That was used all the time. Why don't we clap in church? Well, Nadab and Abihu brought something that God didn't ask for. God struck them with fire. Okay, then. Thanks for the heads up. We weren't even allowed to turn around when somebody came in late because my father would literally say, remember Lot's wife. I'm going... I was about nine or ten when I had the nerve to say, well, that hasn't happened for a long time. And he goes, well, then we're due. <laughs> All right. Nadab and Abihu were struck down by the fire of God because they had a habit of being drunk and disorderly and being careless about their duty before the Lord. We're not careless. We're crazy about Jesus. We're wrapped around Jesus. That's what we are. And maybe we're messy, but we're still his kids. And messy kids are still loving kids. And when they love you, doesn't matter. The synagogue, Jesus went to it. But here, I want to give you a more stunning example about the way our story changes and grows. There, there are many theologians, and I agree with them, that say the Old Testament is an argument about God. And Jesus settles the argument. You want to see how this works? Let's talk about the Moabites. The Moabites, God hated in the Old Testament. Hated them. Now, I know he had to protect his small roving band of Jews until Bethlehem when Jesus could be born. I got that. I understand that. I have no problem with defense and, and having to draw a barrier, if you have to, to, to keep this family alive. But a lot of what you read about the Moabites seems awfully racist. They're barred from the assembly of the Lord, not just for a while. They are unsavable and unconvertible. Even if they want to love Jesus or love, at that time, God, no. Even if they want to become a Jew, no. To the 10th generation. In other words, if you're great, 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 do the math, all the way back to the 10th grandfather or grandmother was a Moabite, you can't come in. That's stricter than the rules about who was a Jew under Hitler and who was black in the years of slavery in the United States. It's stricter than any of those rules. It is more, dare we say, racist? It's 
not a temporary injunction. Look at all the other passages. And if you're thinking, oh, I have to write these down very quickly. No, what you have to do is join a life group because your leaders have my notes. And they'll share them. If you'd like for me to email those to you later, go find a life group and talk to the leaders <laughs> because we want you in a life group. This is the only way we really had. We had no whips or chains to drive you. God repeats his disapproval of the Moabites again and again and again. It's a drumbeat. Ezra breaks up families by the at least scores, if not hundreds of families. Here's a man, he loves his wife, they love their children, and Ezra says to please God, you've got to divorce and drive them out of the city into the wilderness. Can you even imagine the pain, the tears, the broken hearts, the broken homes, the defenseless women, the defenseless children, out in a world with no government protection, no constitution, no bill of rights. They are free for any slave trader coming by because Ezra says God hates Moabites, and that's a Moabite. You've got to break up your family. He believed it. If the Bible were every word, the very words of God, and the writers were just stenographers that wrote it down rather than human beings, you would expect this law to stand. But it did not. Right in the middle of all of these injunctions is the story of Ruth. Who is Ruth? A Moabite woman who is taken in, protected, loved, and not only brought into the family of Israel, but brought into the line of the king of Israel, David, and to the son of God. God was showing them they got it wrong about the Moabites. It wasn't him who hated them because he brought them, her in and even put her in the line of his son. What else could he do? So what happens? Amos comes along and basically says everything Ezra said was wrong. It's in the same Old Testament. Nobody ever holds them up against each other. Amos says social justice is more important than trying to break up a family because of bloodlines. He inst and talks about love and holding on to each other. Malachi comes and says, no, God hates divorce. Don't do this. Ezra did what he did because he thought God wanted him to do it. You confused yet? People say, but if I can't trust that, I can't trust anything. Well, you don't really do well with evidence, do you? That's kind of like, I had a flat tire. The internal combustion en uh, engine is a hoax. No. We merely understand tires and engines, and we know how to work with what we have. Paul, when he writes, remember, he's the one that wrote every scripture inspired by God. He said, now that what the, the perfect has come, Jesus, three things remain. Faith, hope, love. Isn't that interesting? You want to prove it? We can prove it. We can go see Jonah. I love the story of Jonah. The problem with it is every time we talk about Jonah, somebody wants to talk about the fish slash whale slash beastie, whatever it was. And they'll say, oh, think about this. And I'm going, fascinating story. That's not the story of Jonah. There's the, that's just an episode in his story. The story of Jonah is God sends a prophet to the Gentiles. 
not only to the Gentiles, to a hated group of Gentiles that no Jew would have ever even eaten with, much less fellowshiped in any way, shape, or form. And God grabs Jonah, who, like most preachers, had attitude issues, and sent him to Nineveh. And there's a joke in there. We don't get the joke. Yes, he was in the fish slash beastie whale, whatever it was. But whenever he comes out and has to make his way to Nineveh and gets to Nineveh, over the top of the gates of Nineveh, we know we have them in London because the British have loved to go about the world and steal it and take it home. But we have the gates of, of, of Babylon in, in London in the British Museum. And over the top of the gates of Babylon is a symbol of the city of Nineveh. A big fish. It's a joke. We don't get it. The Jews are holding their sides. We're going, he walked into the city. Oh, there's more. Anyway, he preaches a sermon, which is brilliant, which is basically too late for you guys. Forty days, over. That's it. And they repent. Oh, he's upset. God's going to, in fact, he even tells God, I knew you were like this. I knew. I knew. You put me all the way through this, and I knew you were just going to forgive them. So my sermon, the sermon he sent Jonah to preach, didn't work out. Everything he said was wrong. It was only one sentence, but everything he said was wrong. And then God talks to him and says, I like them too. He even says, I like their animals. He says, why should I kill them? And they have lots of cows. That's funny, by the way. We don't get the jokes because we're afraid of jokes. Somebody told us reverence meant that you don't show any joy among Jesus. You don't show joy among God. Excuse me? Let's look at nature. He taught the bee how to dance. That's our God. He lifted up the back end of baboons and painted a rainbow. I would have never thought of that. I'll never forget the time you're driving in the car. I was probably about six years old, so I was sitting in the middle between my, bi my big sisters because that's the way you had to when you were the, the youngest. And my mother says, everybody in the car, look out on that side. And we're all looking. There's nothing there. And being me, the dog that didn't bark, you know, what's left out of this equation? So I look back over here, and I saw there were, there were two cattle in the field trying, trying to play, um, jump, jump over the one, but he... he <laughs> He hadn't quite made it, and, um, but give him, give him credit. He was not going to quit trying, and, and I really, I didn't know what was going on, but my mom actually turned to my father, and she said, they shouldn't be doing things like that right out in the middle of everything. <laughs> well, who designed that? Who decided that? That's our God, and we're terrified to approach him because Constantine made our religion of joy, our community of faith, into a liturgical minefield that we were terrified of doing something wrong. Jesus didn't call us to that. Think about Hosea. Oh, by the way, I had a couple of scriptures, didn't I? Let's go to uh, Genesis chapter 12. Didn't, do we have that? Thank you. Look, God has always intended to save everybody. 
and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Look at Isaiah. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So all those things about Moabites, that wasn't God's idea, but it was our community story and we got it wrong. People, United States has a fantastic story, but slavery is in the story. Shooting perfectly good British people is in the story. <laughs> and I know you can't get a decent cup of tea, but that's your fault, isn't it? <laughs> Think about Hosea. One of my, and I know I have to wrap this up. I'm going a bit long, but... I get into this. It, to me, it's, you've got to understand how this works. Think about Hosea. The Old Testament is very, very, very clear. A priest may never marry an adulterous woman. And God says, go marry that woman. Her name's Gomer. That should be a clue that this may not be the best marriage. Many scholars believe she was adulterous before the marriage because of some wordings that are used there. But when her adultery after the marriage got so bad that she deserted him, she ended up as the lowest class slave on a slave block that was for the cheapest throwaway slaves. And what did God say? A priest may not touch anyone unclean, much less marry them. And God says, go to her, pay the price and then woo her back into your life. Book of Hosea is an odd book. Why would God want us to touch the, the dirty? Why would he want us to bring them into our families? Why would he? Because he always has. And whenever we think my side is right, like I grew up, that we were the only ones going to heaven. And that concerned me, because when I looked about, I didn't want to spend Sunday with these people. <laughs> well, to be fair, they didn't want to spend it with me either. You know, it was, I'm not saying I was, a, you know, all sweetness and light. But even in the book of Hosea, way back then, listen carefully, love trumped law. It always does with God. We do not have a cold book of laws. Rather, we have a narrative that we have been called to enter. And we get to shape the story. New characters are being born all the time. And some of your children are characters, which, will, which God loves. The greatest tool we have to shape this is love. You and I may not always agree about everything, but we can walk together. You and I may, in fact, disagree strongly on some things, but I'm going to tell you this. I'm going, I'm going to issue you a challenge. I am not going to let you outlove me. I'm going to love you more than you can love me back. Start in three, two, one, go. See, foods. Try, try, try. See? Love allied with faith and hope, can even make a Moabite woman acceptable to God and a great-great-grandmother of Jesus Christ. Our story is not locked in stone. Our story is not ink on a page. 
our story lives in a person. The Word of God is Jesus himself, and as his community, we treasure our story and our book. We even treasure the uncomfortable parts because they made us who we are. We promise to do as these people did, follow the Spirit to the best of our ability, wherever he leads us, bringing the children along and telling them it's your story too. And all along the way, we will not be marked by perfection because that never happens. We will be marked by faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is...